0: bibles in the back if you don't own one you can have and if you forgot one you can use one there's sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room uh, on those sermon notes you'll get the verses we go through on the back side there's a bunch of questions that go a little bit deeper if you have a smartphone you can download an app the app is called Uversion, and you click on live and Uversion. we will come up by gps in your smartphone you will get the sermon notes the questions uh, even the announcements that james talked about earlier as well it'll all be on there so when i say open to this book of the bible you're like bam you're already there Amazing how that works. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand out in the reading of God's word. We will get started. This is Matthew chapter 15, verse 23. I'll read it up there because I just read half it every other service. Nobody looks at me like I'm a weirdo. So. Uh, but he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And we're going to deal through this today as we talk about it. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means uh, to be a people who understand how we have been welcomed by our great God and Savior. And that we, in turn, would become a people who welcome those around us like we have been welcomed, and that you would receive great glory as your people live in great joy, understanding uh, the great salvation and redemption that we have in and through you. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So we are in Pharisee University, week eight. We've only got one week left of this. Pharisee uh, University, for short, is PU. And this is our frat house that we have, and it, you know, great. Go us. But whatever. Anyway, uh, this is a lot of stuff we got out of this book called Accidental Pharisees by Larry Osmore. You can pick it up and read it, but you're going to be like, oh, I covered all that. Yes, yes, we did. Uh, today, we're going to jump in and talk about raising the bar so high that only people like you can get in or, or should be in. We're going to discuss how to keep all those we deem undesirable out just like Pharisees. Because if you want to be a good Pharisee, you have to have, to have unrealistic expectations and expect everyone else to follow them. And if they don't, they aren't worthy of God. God's love or certainly not your time to begin with. Ooh, see, it's kind of harsh, right? But that's a lot of how Pharisees lived. And it's also how a lot of our world lives today. Everyone throughout human history has kind of fallen into this mindset in large and small ways. Uh, you know, even at Element, we've had people do this. We've, we've had people send us emails and say, hey, when you guys do communion, it's too easy. You should make it harder. I don't know how I would do that. Maybe I got someone at the communion table going, you want something? No. Would you? I mean, I, I don't know how you make it harder, but it's too easy. You don't label the wine or the grape juice well enough. You've got to do something. about. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Uh, people have complained that sometimes I make you guys laugh too much. It is not really my goal in any message to make you laugh. I'm just sarcastic. That's just my personality. It, my wife doesn't always laugh. Sometimes she finds it irritating. <laughs> but, you know, but I, and so I, I don't really know how I'm not. To do this because it's simply who God made me. And I think God really enjoys laughter. I think He enjoys people that like laughing. So if you don't like laughing, repent. I don't know, you know? (laughs) Some people people have come and and they said, hey, you know, you need to make people do more academic stuff. And so, you know, and we don't want to force him. I don't know how you force somebody to do it. But what we did is we tried to become a little accommodating. And so we did a thing called Element U. And every once in a while we will do these. They're four to six week, like, in-depth, almost like college courses to go through certain things. Uh, And, and again, we we make it so we can be accommodating. But then, again, you use the word accommodating. Some people are like, oh, you're a sellout. You're being accommodating. You're supposed to make it hard. So only the weirdos ever want to go to church service. I don't know. And any time you get to a place where you think people need to be more like you, you tread into waters of the Pharisees. Any time you think it's good to exclude other people or ignore them because they refuse or can't meet your standard, you become a Pharisee. And the sad thing is our society is built around things like this. We make exclusive clubs that are hard to get into because we like it. At one time, Costco was really hard to get into. I mean, now it's like you got 60 bucks. Come on in. I mean, but before it was hard. You had to be like part of something to know somebody else and be able to get your foot in the door. Uh, Vandenberg Credit Union, which is Coast Hills Credit used to be really hard to get into. And so if you did this, like you got into Costco or you got into like Vandenberg Credit Union, like, like I accomplished something, right? I have, I have arrived. I made it in. And now all of a sudden, everybody could get in. They lower the bar. So they let the riffraff in. <laughs> We're the riffraff. Right? That, that's that's who we are. Like colleges. Colleges started, hey, because we want to bring education to the masses. People need to learn. We want we want them to learn. But the more notoriety they get, the better regarded they are, the harder they then become to get into. It just kind of starts working in that way. Now, at the temple in Israel, it was always supposed to be about inviting people in. Invite people. And God says, you know, the, the, the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the foreigners, bring them in in but what the pharisees started to do is they misinterpreted these things and and so they started to keep people out because only the good enough people could actually get in and so they misinterpreted why god had a holy of holies in the middle of the temple where god was and the high priest went in there once a year and then outside of that you had the temp- the, uh, the court of the priests, and outside that the court of the men and then you get like eventually to the court of the women and the gentiles the riffraff that's uh, that's us by the way yeah. woo riffraff go team i don't you know, and then finally, you get, you get out there, but they misinterpreted all of this because God was always about bring them in, invite these people in. It's kind of like what we do on airlines today. In an airline, you got first class. Uh, first class, you get gourmet food. You get real utensils. They're amazing. Not those little plastic things that demasculate you and make you feel like you're a monkey, right? but, but real utensils. you got nice flight attendants. you got your own bathroom. My wife and I, we got upgraded to first class one time. It was amazing. We sit down, and they hand me this hot towel. And I'm like, I open my tray table. I'm like, okay. (laughs) That's what I'm used to, right? Oh, okay, I'll clean. No problem. I'm good. She goes, it's for your face. And I'm like... I don't know. I've never been treated so nice. I don't know what to do with this on, on an airplane. After that, you get business class. Uh, business class, you get more legroom. Before, you used to be the only places that got to plug in your electronics. Is in business class, you got nicer flight attendants. After that, you get to economy plus, maybe a little more legroom. You might get the exit row, but really everything else, you just got to get on the plane a little bit sooner. And then you get economy, right? Economy. That's how I fly. I call economy steerage. If you don't know what steerage is, steerage is way back when, when people couldn't afford like a full fare to ride on a boat, you'd buy this cheaper ticket and you would ride down in the bottom of like an ocean liner with the animals. Steerage. So when I fly, I fly steerage class. That's what I fly. Now, in steerage class, you get no legroom. If you get food, it's like a hard little biscuit, or you can buy food. The last time my wife and I went somewhere, it was like it was after a church service. I hadn't eaten all morning. We hop on a plane. We fly to L.A. We're flying somewhere else. Now it's San Francisco, I guess, because now we're going up there. But anyway, so, and so we're flying, and I'm, I'm just so hungry. So I decide I'm going to buy something to eat. So I spend $14, right? <laughs> I should have packed lunch. Can't make it through customs or security with that. But anyway, so 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 about fourteen dollars, and I got uh, cheese and crackers, walnuts and almonds. This is what I got. Yeah. Isn't this is false advertising because that's walnut. <laughs> there is no plurality in it. I got two almonds. I mean, I'm thinking about sending this picture to the airline and going, uh, false advertising. I'm expecting them to like send me a walnut and be like, here you go, you get two. <laughs> So, I mean, it, this, this way, and so you get those, you know, Damascus utensils, you get two bathrooms for 300 people, you get the rude, wicked witch of the west flight attendant, that's what you get. Airlines are like the temple became and not what it was meant to be. Airlines base your level of worthiness on how much money you spent for a ticket. You know, the Pharisees based it on religious devotion to their principles and where you were born, your pedigree, who you were. It becomes exclusive, one group better than another. And we still continue, as I said, to do this. It is why credit cards are marketed the way that they're marketed. Oh, you want the black card, the blue card, the clear card, the... Silver card, the platinum card, and what kind of card you got? I don't know, but it's better than your card. That, that's how they market to people. You want to be something exclusive. You want to be something a little bit better than everybody else. And what happens is that means somewhere in our society, there's always somebody who's left out. Somebody doesn't get chosen at recess. Somebody gets voted off the island. You are the weakest link. Goodbye. You know, that, that's that person. Our condition of sin that we live in makes us want to exclude and separate from each other. Sin separates people. It's what it does. We start to live like an airplane. This is one of the reasons the scriptures consistently call us to understand that we are like a body. And Jesus is the center. Because when we do that, we will really have true unity. Now open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to go through two passages of Scripture today to show you how exclusivity works. I'm going to show you one in regard to works. I'm going to show you one in regard to pedigree or where you were born. Okay, so we're going to start with pedigree first. Matthew 15, starting in verse 21, starts like this. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman. And we're going to stop right there. The section of scripture takes place in a region that's far to the north of Jewish territory, uh, Tyre and Sidon. These are Phoenician cities located on the Mediterranean coast. Here's a picture. They're way up there on the upper left. This is probably the farthest Jesus ever went in his public ministry is up there. Uh, the Jews despise people from this area. Josephus, the Jewish Roman historian, says the people of Tyre are our bitterest enemy. And so this woman is regarded as an outcast. She's spiritually disregarded because of where she is born because of her pedigree. This is why it says, Behold a Canaanite woman. It points to how extraordinary the story actually is. In Mark chapter seven, verse twenty-six, same story. Mark calls her a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. He can't forget her pedigree. Again, neither can Matthew. Canaanite shows, even relating this story, he goes to where she was born first. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, have mercy on me. Now, the words, have mercy on me, this is the standard way that somebody who begged in that culture would start their ass. This would be like, like in our culture, this is a piece of cardboard. Okay? It's nothing written on it yet. Just have mercy on me. That's our cardboard. And then she says, "O Lord, son of David. Now, she, so that I means she knows who Jesus claims to be, and she knows Judaism, and so and so she says, "My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon." So she says this. She then she gives the ask. You know, our ask is, "We'll work for food." Her ask is, "My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon." So what does Jesus do? Verse twenty three. But he, that's Jesus, did not answer her a word. So Jesus acts like he doesn't. Hear her. The woman has a suffering daughter. He responds with indifference and silence. And most people see this rejection. They notice this. I've had probably more people ask me about this section of Scripture than almost any other. Why does Jesus do this? Why does Jesus act the way he does? Mark doesn't hide that. Mark actually, or Matthew doesn't hide that. He actually draws your attention to the fact because he wants you to grapple with what Jesus is up to. Just like you think Jesus wants his disciples to grapple with what he's up to. Says the disciples came and begged him, saying, "Send her away, for she is crying out after us." Now, who did she come and cry out to? Okay, here you're in church. Okay, fifty percent of the time when I ask a question, the answer is going to be Jesus. Okay, so the other fifty percent you're going to be wrong, but the other fifty percent of the time, but she comes out crying after who? Jesus. You guys are so smart. That's amazing. (laughs) Okay. Now, I don't know where they get the us, because she's crying after Jesus. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, oh, she's crying after Jesus. Tell her to go away. She's bugging us. I don't know where they, where, where they get the us in that. But they're tra- starting to act like a gang. They're the exclusive ones. They're on the inside. Everybody else is on the outside. So send her away, because she's crying out after us. Verse 24, he answered. So Jesus says to this woman, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He answers exactly exactly how the disciples think he should answer. He answers how a Pharisee would answer. He answers how any rabbi of that day would have answered if a Canaanite woman came up and asked for something. You know, I'm not sent to you. I'm sent somewhere else. Most others wouldn't even actually respond to her at all. Now, why does Jesus do this? Because we know other places Jesus says, I came for the entire world. I came for all people. Why does he say he won't respond when actually later, if you read to the end of the story, he actually does respond. I think Jesus is trying to grow his disciples because that's how rabbis taught. They taught through life events. It wasn't just, here's some information, spit it back to me. It was, how do we live? How do we take this life event and grow you into who you need to be? Now, Jesus has tried talking to his disciples about their attitude. Like when the little kids are going, Jesus! And the disciples are like, get away, kids. Kids, you got your hands in something? You're going to touch Jesus? You're going to get him dirty? Get away? You know, and, and Jesus is like, let the kids come to me. Let the children come. So he's trying to get them to understand that everybody has value and worth in his eyes, but they still don't get it. So I think he's trying a different approach. So he starts to respond with words like the disciples think he should probably use. Oh, yeah, sure, let's send her away, that woman. I'm sent to Israel, God's favorites. We have no time for those Gentile females. I think that's a little bit of sarcasm in Jesus. I think he's watching to see how are my disciples going to respond? Are they going to get it? They don't get it. They're like, yeah, yeah, great. Send her away. That's what we want to have happen. It's 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 horrible what happens in there. Verse 25. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. So she doesn't stop. She probably doesn't understand what Jesus is doing, but she still goes up and she calls him Lord. I think that's a good thing for you and I to understand as well. When we don't understand what's going on in our lives, we still call Jesus Lord. We still trust him even though we don't get it. Now, I think the disciples see her do this. uh, In their theology, this woman's supposed to be shunned and ignored and rejected. Yet I think something in them has to be moved. I think maybe God might start to become a little bigger than their theology. I think here maybe a seed is planted in Peter that eventually later in the book of Acts, when God sends him to a Gentile called Cornelius, Peter's like, I don't think so. And God's like, you need to go. So he goes. And the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius. And in Acts 10.34, Peter says this, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. I mean, he finally gets it. I think it starts there. Now, John Ortberg actually writes about this passage, and he talks about how sociologists like to distinguish between two types of connections. The first one is called bonding. Bonding connections are where we perceive people as similar to us, so we develop certain things that make us interact and be in community with one another. Uh, This could be an ethnic group. This could be an economic status uh, at... Uh, element we have element moms and a lot of the moms in that group are are like young ladies with young children and so they kind of all, all bond together. That's kind of around that's bonding. But then there's another thing called bridging and bridging does is it steps across great. Divides. You look outward to encompass encompass those who aren't just like you. This would be like where Element Moms maybe gets together with 60, 70, 80-year-old ladies whose children are out of the home and they start to connect and learn how they can learn from one another. That's bridging across divides. We as God's people are called to be bridgers where we bridge across great divides with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Eventually, the disciples become the greatest bridgers the world's ever known, but here they're exclusive, and they don't get it. She comes to Jesus. She begs, you know, Lord, help me. Verse 26, and he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, how harsh is that? I mean, you you ever got called a dog? It's not pretty. It's not nice. And this is the word that he uses there. And so I think he looks at his disciples when he says it because Jesus gives words to their exclusivity. Jesus gives words to what's going on inside of them. Maybe all the things they're afraid to say out loud. Dog. A dog in that culture is a worthless animal at that time. It's how we know we're more refined today because we like dogs. If you love Jesus, you like dogs. Okay, that's just how it works. John Ortberg quotes Miroslav Volf as saying, Jesus' names is sin, what so often passes for virtue, especially among religious circles. Okay? So she says, after Jesus says this, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, in Greek, there's a little wordplay going on here. Jesus, when he uses the word for dog, doesn't use the worst form of dog. He uses, like, little dog or puppy. Like those people that drive around in their cars that have those little dogs that drive around with them and they're on their lap. Weirdos. I'm a Pharisee. Sorry, that's how it works. Um, and so, so it's like this little dog. And so, when Jesus, and so when the woman responds, she uses the word for little crumb. Hey, you know, I might just be a little dog, so I'll only take a little crumb if you want to fall from your table. And what it shows is the woman, she's, she's got a little play, playfulness. She's got a little wit. I think, I think she maybe understands what Jesus is doing. And so she kind of throws that out, and he just kind of responds. But It's, it's kind of neat how it works. But as soon as she says this, Jesus totally softens. And he turns and he looks at the woman and he he says this, verse 28. Then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now, you know that Jesus has has a great heart for this woman, that he's loved her the entire time because this phrase, oh, woman. I mean, you try that with your wife, you may get slapped. But but the word, (laughs) oh, woman, it's this deep, endearing term. It shows a great amount of love and grace for this woman. And he says, your faith is great. The word great there for faith is the word mega. It means it means great. It means great. It's, it's big. It's like if you have a store, but then there's a gigantic store, the same thing, and call it a superstore, or like Santa Maria has a mall. But if you go down to LA, you get to a real mall, and we call it a mega mall. Right? That's that's the thing, it's mega, it's huge. And Jesus consistently says to the disciples, You of little faith. You of little faith. That her faith, the one who they thought was their inferior. The outsider, the one that's supposed to be kept out and excluded, is given the greatest commendation in regards to faith Jesus ever gave to anybody in the Scriptures. Did her pedigree matter? Did it matter where she was born? No. One person. No. It didn't matter where she was born. Got it? Good. Okay, open to Matthew chapter 23. We'll talk about works now. Matthew 23 is all about woes. We started at the Pharisee University in Matthew chapter 23 as well. Uh, The Pharisees didn't associate with people who had lower standards than them. It showed their devotion to God. So the more spiritual that you were, you saw yourself, the less people you could hang out with. So people were excluded because of ethnicity, like, you know, the, this Gentile. Uh, for gender, woman. So she's got a double thing going against her. She's a woman and, and, a, and a Gentile. Uh, physical problems like leprosy, uh, certain jobs, tax collectors, dung collectors, pigeon keepers. I understand the whole tax collector part. I got that, you know. But devotion to the law. This was above all things. So you separate yourself from others who weren't devoted as you were to the law. Your righteousness was seen as a virtue, so you wouldn't hang out with all those messed up people. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, Jesus says, "...but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces." That's what they're doing. Why? Because of their exclusivity, because of how they are living. Now, a lot of people believe that Matthew may have actually been written in Aramaic and translated into Greek. So there's a lot of Aramaic idioms throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew 23 all keeps looking back in on itself as it goes through it. And so you go to verse 4. It kind of leads to this whole idea of how do they shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces? Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, and they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. The central claim to this exclusivity is that they've made it heavy and burdensome. Now, in the Greek text, this is baras, fortas, dus bastastas." tas. Someone who played Skyrim in second service said, sound like I'm doing a dragon shout, if you know what that is. Okay, okay. But even the words, they sound heavy and burdensome, right? Like, oh, that's so, so heavy. The image is placing heavy loads on somebody. It's like uh, I had a friend a few years ago. We were helping somebody move out of this second-story apartment. And I'm moving this fridge, so I kind of put it on my friend's shoulders, and I said, okay, go. Spiritually, that's exactly what that is. It's laying heavy loads on people and not doing a thing to help. And, and when Jesus starts talking here, this is not the, the happy, airbrush Jesus. This is like the cranked up to 11 Jesus, where the woe is like a dire, deep, heavy warning. You load people with bars, fortas, deuce, boss, toss, toss, boom, you know. When you read kingdom of heaven, it means the rule and the reign of God, God coming into this reality. Jesus' fundamental premise of the kingdom of God is that when you see it, when people are living in it, when the rule and the reign of God is actually on people, it's, people are like, that's amazing. I want to I be part of that. That's what people see. So religious leaders put heavy burdens on people. It makes them furious because that's not what the kingdom of God is. His argument is they've made it heavy. Don't get me wrong here. Not hard. He uses the word heavy. Heavy and hard are different. Sometimes Jesus' words and his message was hard. It was confrontative, but it's never heavy. We always seem to want to make the message heavy. It's greater sacrifice, greater study, simpler living, be radical, be passionate, none of which are bad. They're not bad things, but they're not the central point of the gospel. Doing things isn't necessarily following Jesus. The Pharisees had no place in their theology for words like Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. They had nothing for like Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, and 12, where Paul says, Live a quiet life and mind your own affairs and work with your hands as I instructed you. By doing that, people will notice your life, and they will want to be part of that kingdom of God. A lot of Christians live like Pharisees, and they hate verses like that because a lot of people love to put heavy burden and guilt on people. It's not the hard words that lead to freedom. It's simply the do this and do this and do this, and it's not the hard words that break the chains that are enslaving you so you can live in the true freedom and knowledge of Jesus. The message of Jesus is not to be heavy, but sometimes it is hard. It is confrontative. It is deeply convicting. Because when we come face to face with true grace and true compassion, the true holiness of who God is, and then we see ourselves, we know we're not worthy. And yet Jesus has welcomed us anyway because of who he is and not because of what we have done. And when you understand his goodness and his welcoming of us, you really only have two options at that point. You either start to live like a Pharisee and say, I'm going to pay God back, or you live in humbleness. Because God saved you simply by his grace. Jesus fears the religious leaders because they made the message heavy. Christianity in its worst form is always if you could just this, or if you could only be this, you know, chant, climb the mountain, chant the song, eat the bugs and dirt, hand out the tracks, then God will do blank. You know what that is? That's voodoo. That's witchcraft. That is not Christianity. That is not following Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The message is about what Jesus has done. That's the heart of the gospel, who Jesus is. He is upset with the religious leaders because they weigh people down. Oh, you don't pray enough, and you don't read enough, you don't give enough, and you don't share your faith enough, and you don't vote the way we do enough. That's loading people down. It makes it an exclusive club when the message of the gospel is about who we are in the person of Christ. Now go down to Matthew uh, 23, verse 23. This all again goes together. So Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, justice, and mercy and faithfulness; these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, this is great in obscure preaching references: gnats and camels. You really can't, you really can't beat that. And this is one of the reasons why some people think this is written Aramaic, because in Aramaic, this is a great little pun going off each other. A gnat is kamla and camel is gumla. So it's like it's like kamma gumla, kamma gumla. Whoo! Rap battle. Drop the mic. I'm out. Okay, it's it's awesome. And it goes, and it goes whew, right over the Pharisee's head, just like it goes over our head and we try and read it in here. Isn't that sweet? Just see Jesus do it once, right? Done. Anyway, anyway. So why, when he hammers home these things about weightier matters of the law, does he end with gnats and camels? He starts with mint, dill, and cumin and puts this all together. Like, you know, giving is great. That, that, that's a wonderful thing. But what did the Pharisees start to do when, it, when they ate and drank? Well, they're terrified they would get a bug in their meal because you weren't allowed to eat bugs as a Jew. You know, unless it's a locust, which I still think is nasty, but whatever. You know, they didn't want a gnat in their drink. And so when you went to drink with the Pharisee, well, they had these complicated sets of strainers on the table, especially over their drinks because they didn't want to gnat in their wine. So you would see this. This all goes. So you have a drink, you'd be all, and food. So if you had a table full of Pharisees, what you would see is this. It's like a bad monty python sketch <laughs> snl sketch is that better jimmy fallon sketch i know i got i'll hit one of these somewhere in there that, that's what that's what it's like it's it's kind of it's kind of comical in it now if you say why don't they you know why don't they want a gnat in their wine we would say it's nasty from the book of duh right because it, it, it's just <laughs> yeah but to a Pharisee, this is this is all connected, it's all connected, and that's had a religious significance. To a Pharisee, that is understanding why things had fallen apart from them as a nation. You believe you are God's people, a descended from Abraham, you know, the great patriarch of the faith. Your job is to show the world what God is like. Your worldview is that you have been chosen by God, but world history has not borne that out. You've been conquered by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, you've been slaves in Egypt. Now Rome, this military superpower, is erecting statues to false gods all over your country. And as a Jew, you live with this ache inside of you that we're supposed to be the ones. We're supposed to be the ones. And yet you get beat up all the time. To a Pharisee, this happens because of sinners. And in one sense, they're kind of right. But there's like God's, you know, judging them for the lack of being zealous enough about God and his decrees. They would say, our country isn't pure enough, upright enough. A lot of Christians feel this way about America today, by the way. For a Pharisee, their drive was to be ritually clean and to show God that there there are people in the country that wasn't like everybody else. We are better than everybody else. For a Pharisee, your spirituality was tied up in how well you could distance yourself from other people. People who were unclean, people who were sinners. The people who God says you need to go out and talk to them, reach out to them because I'm welcoming them. Those people, oh, no, no, they say you can't talk to them because they believe sinners were the reasons they're in this mess. Now, Leviticus 11.20 says all winged insects, uh, gnats are one of these, that go on fours are to be detestable, that's the word unclean, to you. God is very practical as a father. Okay, God's like, don't eat bugs. I know you've got kids and you're like, my kids want to eat bugs. As a good dad, you say... Don't eat bugs. Snails in your yard are not escargot. Okay, and even if they are, don't eat them because it's still just a little bit nasty. And so that's the, don't, don't eat bugs. Now these laws came to be called kosher, meaning fit or proper or lawful, strict dietary laws. As a Pharisee, you don't want a gnat in your wine because you're saying we understand how we got in this mess. If people were righteous and pure and holy like us, then God would show up and take care of this mess. So a gnat would be about their standing with God and ultimately that they were more righteous than anybody else around them because they never got a gnat in their wine. This is why Jesus says, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You're so committed to your own personal definitions of holiness that in straining out a gnat, you've swallowed a camel. That is a slam to their exclusivity. Why? Camels are unclean. Leviticus 11.4 says, don't eat camels. I know, probably not a big deal for you. I've ridden a camel. A camel has tried to eat me. But I have never in my life thought, oh, I want to eat a camel. I don't worry about that. But so what Jesus does here, those you have uh, unclean, you you have laws of God, gnats and camels. And he deals a crushing blow to the Pharisees who saw everything about being right with God being like this pure and holy and just and righteous and right standing with God because that's the driving motivation for a Pharisee. Jesus says you are so consumed with being in right relationship with God, spending so much time making sure you don't get a gnat in your wine that you have become unclean. That's what he tells them. You're so set on your own personal holiness that you have missed the bigger issues of loving and seeking the lost. Your personal piety has slammed the door to the kingdom of heaven, not in other people's faces, but in your own. That's what it has done. Jesus says, Matthew 21, 31, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. You didn't keep them out. You kept yourself out. That's what he tells them. See, that's the irony of exclusion. It makes you think you're doing God a favor. Oh, God, look how good I am. Look at all these things I'm doing. God did you a favor. God saved you. You were lost and broken and alone. And our God reached out his hands to save you. That is amazing. Exclusivity makes you think you're doing a favor to somebody else when you talk to them. Oh, hey, I'm so great. And you're just jacked up. How are you doing? I mean, it's, it's got that mindset. When we exclude, we are the farthest from God. It doesn't just hurt other people. It damages our very own souls. The only ones that excluders keep from God's community and true hope is themselves. So the question becomes, how are you doing? How are you doing with that? I mean, what exclusions have you set up? I mean, what if the person next to you is a Democrat? What if the person next to you is a Republican? What if the person next to you is like a, a vegan? I don't eat things with faces. Or the person next to you is like a meat eater. I only eat things with spines. You know, I mean, what what do you use to separate yourself from somebody else? What do you use to say, I'm good and you're not as good as me? When was the last time you didn't associate with somebody? When was the last time you noticed somebody who was left out and actually went over and tried to do something about it? You see, Jesus was sinless and righteous and he embraced the outcast. He does not condone sin, but he clarifies all these unfair labels. He speaks to outcasts, he touches outcasts, he loved them, and he ate with them. The Miroslav Wolf quote goes on and it says, By embracing the outcasts, Jesus underscored the sinfulness of the persons and systems that cast them out. See, when we follow Jesus, that means we embrace others. And do not get me wrong when I say these things. There is a personal call for holiness. God's spirit will come. He will convict us of things and lead us in areas. And we follow him where he calls us to go. But sometimes in that, he will give us a burden that he wants us to like, work through. And so we take, like, like maybe uh, you've been a Christian for years. And one day you say, I'm really going to learn theology. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to read some books. I'm going to figure this out. And you're like, okay. I'm gonna, and so you start to do that. You've got to be careful. Because what might just happen is you might get a couple of years into this and start thinking, why isn't everybody as serious as I am? Why isn't everybody studying theology like I am? They should all be like me because I find this really, really important. Not realizing that you were a loser too until, you've, until God said, hey, study theology. Oh, okay, I guess I'll do that. I mean, that, that was you. We're always trying to take things and convictions that God has placed on us and put them on other people. We've got to be so, so careful with that. I mean, I know I do this to you all the time when I talk about country music and boy bands. I get it, you know. I still think it's sinful and you shouldn't listen to them. But there you go. You know, but that's me being a Pharisee. You know, this is why throughout the scriptures we constantly come back that we must center on the person of Christ. Because when we do our grace expand our love expands, we become less exclusive. Our circle becomes as big as Jesus. Is. And what is Jesus' circle? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. John 3.16, the football verse. For God so loved the world, they gave us one and only son. I mean, that, that's, that's the understanding. The more we exclude, the more like Pharisees we become. And I know if you're like me, uh, I, I am a horrible Pharisee. Because even when I go through stuff like this, I think, oh, I don't really exclude anybody. We all exclude somebody. There are all people in our lives that we do this to. And I think the hard work is being honest about it, about who that is. I mean, this is, this is one of the reasons, you know, we end messages the way that we do with communion and prayer and giving and music and all of these things. Because, because it's this place where we allow God to start working on our hearts. This is why we go to communion every week. You break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for you. Why? Because you needed it. You dip it in the wine of the grapes. It represents Christ's blood that was shed for you and I to wipe away our sin. Why? Because we needed it. Just like the people we want to exclude need it. when you go and take communion you lay everything down at the foot of Jesus and your eyes refocus on who he is and you take communion you get up and you walk out going my eyes are going to be where they're supposed to be on him the band's going to come up as they do we invite you to take communion like I said there'll be some deacons in the back and if you guys need prayer for anything we invite you to pray with them maybe if you can't even decide or figure out where you're being exclusive or where these things are they'd love to pray with you they'd love to pray with you about anything really they really would uh, but part of it, and we have to be so honest about our lives and the things God's Spirit calls us to, calls in us. There's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is then just part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. Again, it's a response to what he has done. Uh, there's food and stuff in the back. In first service, they had a bunch of strawberries this morning. They had some last service too. And I'll tell you, you know, fruit is amazing. You can eat a, a whole dozen donuts, eat one strawberry, cancels it out. It's in the Bible somewhere. No, it's not. Don't send me an email. Because one of you would. You're like, oh, "Oh, you're a heretic. I know it's not in the Bible. Weirdos. Weirdos. But we do that because we want you to grab something to eat, and we want you to start to make some connections with other people because the only way we're going to grow in this is by living in community with one another where people have the ability to step into our lives and speak hard words because we trust them, because we love them, because we're in community with them. This is why God calls us to live in community with each other. This is why it's so important here that we have these things called gospel communities. We're always trying to get you guys in them so that you start to live this way, encouraging one another around the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, our God is good. Our God has welcomed us. And when we understand that, we should be the most welcoming people in the world. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have standards that he has set up. It doesn't mean that God doesn't call us to, to personal holiness. But, but that we should be the people in this world. And people think Christians. They, should think, they shouldn't think, those horrible hypocrites. They should think, man, those people are the most welcoming people I've ever met. Why? Because we have been welcomed by our great God when we were lost and we were broken. We need to be people who reflect the goodness of our great God who has saved us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to live in the understanding of the welcome that you have given to us. That we would honestly take a look at the burdens we place on one another. That we would honestly look at how we have excluded others around us. And then begin to repent. And understand the great hope that you have called us to. The great hope you called us to live within. That we would bow all of ourselves before you, understanding that you are the one who has first loved us. And you are the one who has first blessed us and sought us and bought us with your blood and your life. Teach us to honor you. And how we live out your call on mission. Living and loving in ways. That lift you up. So the entire world would know. That we have been saved. Not because we are so good. But simply because you are that good. And that we would in turn become a humble people. Living a life that shows the goodness of a God who has saved us. Teach us to live in the hope and the grace that you consistently provide. We ask this in your son's great and good name. Amen.